I'm going to ask those who are in Grays, those who are in Graniteville, those live streaming, those present here, to bow your heads, close your eyes as we read Scripture, as we prepare our hearts to worship God through His Word. If there's some unconfessed sin in your heart, deal with that now that the Spirit might have freedom to teach you and to help you and to guide you through the Scripture. Do you not know, have you not heard? Has it not been declared to you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundation of the earth? It is the Lord who sits above the vault of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. It is he who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them out like a tent to dwell in. He is the one who reduces rulers to nothing, who makes the judges of the earth meaningless. To whom then will you liken me that I should be as equal, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes on high and see who's created these stars, the one who leads forth their host by number. He calls them all by name because of the greatness of his might and the strength of his power. So why will you say, O Jacob, and assert, O Israel, that my way is hidden from the Lord and that the justice due me escapes the notice of my God? Do you not know, have you not heard, the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, does not become weary or tired. His understanding is inscrutable. It gives strength to the weary and to him who lacks might, he increases power. Though youths grow weary and tired and vigorous young men stumble greatly. Yet those who wait for the Lord will gain new strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not get tired. They will walk and not become faint. Holy Father, you are great. You sit above the circle of this earth. And though we are but grasshoppers in your sight, you care about every detail of our life. Your word says that you go in front of us and behind us. And even before there's a word on our tongue, you know what we will say. So teach us in this hour to wait upon you that our strength might be renewed. For those who have never had the birth from above, may today be a turning point. May your Holy Spirit speak to them as only he is able. I know I can preach the word, but only he can impart it. And I ask and pray that his ministry would be real in the lives of those who are lost and those who have already met you. So help us to lay aside all the distractions with Peter. We want to gird up our, our loins for action, to gird up our minds for truth, and we ask that you would take what we're going to learn, that we might apply it. And I ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Take God's word, would you? Romans chapter 5. This morning, I want to speak on the theology of persecution. You say, well, Pastor Carl, I'm not a theologian. Well, really, everyone is a theologian, whether we know it or not. The word theos is the Greek word for God, and oligos is the word for knowledge of. And so theology is just a thought or an expression or a knowledge of God. Everyone has a theology because everyone thinks something about God. Even the atheist has a theology. He says there's no God. The agnostic has a theology. Gnosis, knowledge, ah, the prefix, alpha, means no knowledge. He says he doesn't know if there is a God. And agnosticism 
is nothing but another popular form of atheism. Even the pantheist has a theology. Pan means all. He says, all is God and God is all. The chair you're sitting in, the pulpit I'm behind, it's all God. Everything is God. Listen, whatever your frame of reference is, you have a theology. The question is, is it accurate? Maybe you read it in a book. Maybe you think it's original with you. Maybe your parents taught you something. Maybe some rabbi or priest or pastor. But the question is, is it true? And sometimes people will kind of sit up tall and rear back their shoulders and say, well, I believe, but is it true? And so God has given us the only book he wrote, the Holy Scripture. We find a plumb line by which we can evaluate any thoughts that we have. But if it goes beyond what Scripture teaches or it contradicts Scripture, then you're on a faulty foundation. And so God tells us to show ourselves approved of God as workmen who are not ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. And so this morning, I want us to think biblically, accurately about what God says concerning persecution, because we have a theology of persecution, but is it correct? Now, last time we studied the first two verses, we're in a series, if you're new, we just finished the prophet Malachi. Before we begin a new book of the Bible, I'm doing a series on our identity in Christ. Last week, we looked at Romans 5, 1 and 2. This morning, we want to look at verses 3, 4, and 5. But to give us a running start, let's start reading in verse 1 of chapter 5. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we exult in hope of the glory of God. And not only this, but we also exult in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance, and perseverance proving character, and proving character hope. And hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who is given to us. Now, for the benefit of those who are new, but also for our own personal edification, let me remind you of the broad context, and then we'll zoom in on the immediate context. As you read through Romans over and over again, you discover there are three major divisions. And if you were here for the first message in this series, we saw that the theme to Romans is the righteousness of God. Paul underscores that in his introduction. And so the theme all the way through in some way, shape, or form deals with God's righteousness. In chapters 1 through 8, the theme is concerning God's righteousness as it is revealed. And so, if you remember, we discovered already here in the doctrinal section that God shows that we're all condemned by nature, that all men have some knowledge of God, and we have enough knowledge of God so that no one can claim innocence because no one can claim ignorance. And so, in the opening section, he deals with the doctrine of condemnation. Then he will move in this section to the doctrine of justification. In verses, in chapters 3, 4, and 5, the second half of chapter 3, all the way really through 5. And 5 becomes somewhat a, a, a transitional chapter. And so when we come to chapters 6 through 8, he will deal with the doctrine of sanctification. So each of these three sections divide under three sections. And so he deals with condemnation, justification, and sanctification. So we're still dealing here in the fifth chapter with justification. When you come to chapters 9 through 11, 
the subject is God's righteousness vindicated. If you remember, chapter 8 ends with, nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so a carefully, biblically oriented person would immediately ask, well, if that's true, then what about Israel? And so 9 through 11 is not a parenthesis in the argument. It's actually an extension of the truth that God's love is everlasting for the people of Israel. Now, people today hate Israel more and more. And something happened on October the 7th that I don't think I would have imagined. I knew, because Scripture teaches it, that there would come a time when all the nations of the world would oppose Israel. But with the rapidity that has happened since October 7th, it's beyond imagination except for the fact that the Scripture prophesies it will take place. And so in Romans 9, he deals with Israel's election. Out of all the nations of the world, God chose Israel to bring the Messiah. Chapter 10 of this national section deals with the subject of why are they in unbelief? Why have they rejected their Messiah? And so chapter 9 deals with their election, chapter 10 with their rejection. And then chapter 11 deals with their future restoration. There's coming a time in Israel's history when they will say Jesus is the Messiah. There's already 30,000 plus Jewish believers of Jesus in Israel today, but that's just a small portion, a remnant of what is going to happen in the future. Then when you come to chapters 12 through 16, you find God's righteousness applied. And again, he underscores three critical areas, gifts, government, in, in gray areas. He deals with the subject of spiritual gifts. If you're a believer, you have a spiritual gift. You should come on Wednesday. We'll be speaking a little bit about this in our series on developing an eternal perspective. He will deal with our relationship to the government. Why does God have earthly governments? And how should the Christian respond? And then with gray areas, what about those issues that are not specifically spelled out in Scripture? How do I discern whether something is a particular sin? So section one is doctrinal, it's God's righteousness revealed. Section two is national, it's God's righteousness vindicated. God proves that his love is indeed an everlasting love by the way he treats Israel. And then the third section deals with God's righteousness applied. Now let me zoom in on the immediate context. It was two weeks ago we were here and we dissected the first two verses, but if you don't understand the flow, verses 3 through 5 will make little sense. Notice how the chapter opens with the word therefore. This is the fifth therefore to date in Paul's letter to the Romans. He is giving a reason of how we should respond to what he has just said. Having shown that we're condemned, having then painted a picture of the cross in chapter 3, that Jesus died on a cross and didn't die for some or most, but all of your sin, where God was satisfied, he was propitiated. And then having illustrated it in chapter 4 with Abraham and David, he writes of those two men, not just to give us a biography on their lives, but to apply it to our lives, to apply it to our experience. And then if you'll look across the page, the very last word in chapter 4 is the word justification. We saw that that word meant to declare or to impute righteousness. God doesn't make you righteous the day you're saved. He credits you with righteousness. 
So it's not simply just as if I had never sinned. It's also equally true just as if I had always obeyed. And so God gives us the righteousness of Christ. We've been justified by faith. It is a done deal. And so in a moment's time, you are instantly in an eternal right relationship with the Lord. And so he opens this chapter with the words in verse 1, Therefore, having been justified by faith, because you can't be saved by works, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, please note, he's not speaking of the peace of God. He does in other portions of Scripture, but here, peace with God. If you're an unbeliever, you are, as verse 10 indicates in this chapter, still an enemy of God. The one who believes in the Son has life. The one who does not believe the wrath of God abides on him. When you get that truth into your life, that if you're lost and God's wrath is on you, it's abiding on you, and if you expire without responding to Jesus, that's a dangerous place to be. I wouldn't want to lay my head on the pillow knowing that if I didn't get my heart right with the Lord. That's peace with God. That's a new relationship. There are believers who have peace with God, but not the peace of God. Paul will write of the peace of God to the Philippians when he says, be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So the peace of God is an internal feeling, so to speak. It's a peaceful state of mind. That's not the subject here in chapter 5. He's dealing with external, objective peace where we're no longer enemies, but we are reconciled and considered God's friends. Look at verse 2. Through whom, through Christ Jesus, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we exalt or celebrate or rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And so it is this peace with God that gives us an introduction to God the Father. Now, some translations say access, but the word access might imply that you have taken the initiative. The word introduction is used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament called the Septuagint, because most Jews in Paul's day did not read Hebrew, but Greek, and it's used of someone who is brought into the presence of royalty into a king. And so in secular context, it's used in that way as well outside of Scripture. With that said, we have an introduction. We have access to God the Father. And that's a radical, radical thought, especially for a Jewish person who his whole life felt separated from God. If you remember, we studied Exodus 19 where God comes down on Mount Sinai, and we read there, the Lord also said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow, and let them wash their garments. Let them be ready for the third day, for on the third day the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. You shall set bounds for all the people, for the people all around, saying, Beware that you do not go up on the mountain or touch the border of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall surely be put to death. So nobody said, Well, I'm just going to go up and visit the Lord. You touch the edge of the mountain, you are dead. Only one man, even as worship became more formalized 
through the tabernacle and later the temple, only one man could come into the presence of God, and that was just once a year on Yom Kippur, where the Shekinah glory of God would dwell. But Paul is saying, listen, we've obtained our introduction, and then he elaborates by faith into this grace in which we stand. So we're not only invited into the presence of the King of Kings, we stand in his presence. And this is the promise of the new covenant, Jeremiah 31, Ezekiel 36, that God would place his spirit in us, that he would become the earnest, the down payment, as Paul would say, so that we would be saved forever. We stand in this grace. This is an everlasting peace. It's an unchangeable state. Again, verse 2, through whom also we've obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand. We exalt or we celebrate in the newer edition of the NES. We rejoice, you could render it. We rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Now, we noted last time that when you see this word hope, in the Greek mind, it's very different from the English word hope. I hope the rain quits. I I hope I get a raise. I hope my suit still fits. That's a hope-so kind of hope, something that is indefinite. But the word that is used in the New Testament and in the Greek language has a lot more steel and concrete to it. It speaks of something that is absolutely certain. And biblically speaking, hope is defined with both desire and expectancy. And if you have neither desire or expectancy, you do not have biblical hope. For instance, I may desire to win a million dollars, but I don't expect to. Uh, Omit either desire or expectancy, and you don't have hope. Or I expect to pay my taxes soon, but I don't desire to. So expectancy and desire make up something that is sure and certain in the future. And so we have acceptance, as he has been underscoring in chapters 3 and 4, through the finished work of Christ, so that we have a sure and certain hope that the work God began, he is going to complete. And so to help us understand this further, how God is going to continue this work, because there's not only our state, there's our standing. Our state or excuse me, our standing is who we are in Jesus Christ. We stand in this grace. We've been declared righteous. Our standing is permanent. It is unchangeable. Whereas our state fluctuates based on decisions that we make. And so the Apostle Paul wants our uh, practice to match our position. And he's going to help us to understand that one way in which God accomplishes that is through persecution. Maybe you haven't thought much about persecution, but it's important that we have a theology of persecution. And if you have children or grandchildren, it's critically important that you teach them what God says. I want to underscore three truths that are found right here in our text. First, how maturity is displayed by us. That's Roman number one. If you're new, there's a note-taking outline. If you're live streaming, you can print it out. How maturity is displayed by us. Notice now how verse three begins. In not only this, but we also exult in our tribulations. Last time you were with us, we underlined that phrase, and not only this. It appears three times in this chapter, and each not only this heightens the level of rejoicing. A man was in Washington, D.C., 
And the cabbie was parked at a light there in front of the National Archives, and he looked over at that great statue. Many of you have seen it. At the base of the statue, it says, the past is prologue. The past is prologue. And so he asked the cabbie what that meant. He said, oh, that's just government talk for you ain't seen nothing yet. <laughs> and of course, the, the quote comes from Shakespeare. It means, in essence, that what has happened in the past, as recorded in those archives, sets the context for the present. And that's precisely what the Apostle Paul is going to underscore for us. Because God has given us this new standing, this righteousness which we stand in forever and ever and ever, and it can never, ever, ever change. Because of this new standing, God has a plan for your life and that he wants to change your life and my life. And so, look further into verse 3, and not only this, but we also exalt or rejoice in our tribulations. Now, some of your translations say we rejoice in our sufferings, but the King James and the New American Standard and the Young's Literal Translation are most precise by using the word tribulations. And I say that because sufferings can come on a believer that are not necessarily tribulations. We tend to just mix trial and tribulations together, where there are two distinct concepts in the New Testament. Now, certainly every tribulation is a trial, but not every trial is a tribulation. There's a distinct difference. A tribulation, biblically defined, is opposition. It's the kind of opposition that lost people have towards God's people. It's the pressure of a lost world against the believer, and it's habitually used that way throughout the New Testament. Jesus in Mark 13 says this in Mark 13, 19 in the Olivet Discourse, for those days will be a time of tribulation. Now, tribulation in the, in the Olivet Discourse is used in two facets, one in terms of what God will bring, his wrath that will come upon the earth but also the wrath of man, not just the wrath of God, but the wrath of man and even the wrath of Satan, where God's people are habitually persecuted. And so these will be, for those days will be a time of tribulation. Same word that Paul uses in Romans 5, philipsis, such as has not occurred since the beginning of the creation, which God created until now and never will. In Revelation chapter 7, He's describing tribulation saints who are in heaven. They came to faith during the tribulation. The second coming hasn't happened, and they're already in heaven. How did they get there? They were persecuted to the point of death. And the preferred means of execution in that day will be beheading. And so we read of them in Revelation 7, 14. These are the ones who come out of the great tribulation, same word, thelepsis, and they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Jesus made this statement in John 16 to prepare us. In the world you have philipsis, tribulation. But take courage, I have overcome the world. He will say, as he teaches there in the upper room discourse, if they hated me, they'll hate you. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. Why? Because the servant is not greater than his master. And like vain, Paul said to the church in Lystra in Acts 14, through many tribulations, same word, philipsis, through many persecutions, 
We must enter the kingdom of God. So tribulation, again, is the persecution, the pressure from an ungodly world upon those who follow Jesus. Now, think again in verse 3. And not only this, but we exult in our tribulations. Notice it's not tribulation singular, but as in Acts, it's plural. Because typically, there's not a singular tribulation, but there's a lifestyle of opposition that comes upon the child of God. I exult in my tribulations. Again, some translations say celebrate or rejoice or glory or even boast. Now, it seems odd that we would celebrate in being persecuted. But if we understand what God can do through persecution and the good that it can bring and that nothing is wasted, and as he will underscore in the eighth chapter when speaking about tribulation, that God will work all things together for good, then we can have a different kind of response. Now, when a Christian faces either a trial or sometimes a tribulation persecution, they can respond in one of several ways. Some will reason, well, God doesn't see what I am going through, the suffering, the persecution that I've encountered. But if they stop and reflect for a moment, they'd say, well, that can't be true because God knows all things. Again, that great psalm on the omnipresence of God, 139, he goes before us, behind us, even before there's a word in our tongue, he knows it. Well, the devil might tempt you to think, well, God knows all things, He knows that you're suffering. He just doesn't care. And then upon reflection, you'd have to say, well, that can't be true. God proved his love towards me and that while I was yet a sinner, he loved me and died for me. Still, the devil may attack. Well, certainly God knows. Certainly God cares. He just can't do anything about it. And the informed Christian would say, no, that's not true. Nothing is impossible with God. And if God wants to do something about it, he can do whatever he chooses. And again, you see here in verse 3, and not only this, but we exult in our tribulation, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance. That sounds very similar to James chapter 1, doesn't it? Again, with a different slant, not with tribulation, but with trials. But there he writes, consider it all joy, my brethren, When you encounter various trials, knowing, there's the word knowing. I hope you circled it in verse 3. Knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance. Here James says, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And so we display a maturity that we are growing in our faith when we learn to exalt, rejoice, and celebrate in both trials and in tribulations where we're able to give thanks in all things. Hold your finger here, would you, and turn to 1 Peter. You're in Romans. Turn to the right if you're new to the Bible. It's before Revelation. After the general epistles, Hebrews and James, you come to 1 and 2 Peter. And of course, Peter experienced great persecution in his life. You find him in the Acts, beaten on one occasion, jailed, You find him in the end of life as tradition records, and it's an accurate tradition. History is clear on this one. Because he refused to renounce Christ, he was crucified, just as Jesus said he would die in John 21. But what tradition affirms is that he said, I don't deserve to be crucified as my Lord, and so they crucified him upside down. 1 Peter 4, I hope you found it. Beloved, that tells you right off who is he speaking to. 
God's people. This is a term that's reserved for Christians in the Bible. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. Again, God's people here drop down to verse 14. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, these are followers, if you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Look at verse 16. If anyone suffers as a Christian, he is not to be ashamed, but is to glorify God in this name. So he's speaking to believers what Jesus referred to in the gospel as bearing your own cross. Suffering as a Christian, bearing your own cross, he's not talking about your backache or your headache. He's not even talking, ladies, about your husband. Now, he may be cross, but that's not what Jesus is talking about when he says, bear your own cross. Jesus speaks like Peter, like Paul, like the writer of the Hebrews, like James, about suffering for the cause of Christ. Listen to these words in the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are you. Now, we tend to use the old English when we come to the Beatitudes, blessed, but it's blessed. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Jesus doesn't say if this happens, but when people insult you and persecute you, not for being obnoxious, but for following the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, it may come in different ways. It can come in many forms and expressions. It might mean being unpopular. It might mean being left out of some social occasion because people are not comfortable with you. It might be physical persecution. It might be verbal persecution. But Paul, like Peter, like Jesus, underscores that it will come. Look again in 1 Peter 4 and verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing as though some strange thing were happening to you. So we're not to be surprised, especially if we're suffering. That's the word synonymously used, as we'll see in a moment, with persecution in the New Testament. For what he defines here contextually as a fiery ordeal for doing what's right. The word fiery ordeal in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, most Jews were unable to read Hebrew by the time Jesus was on the planet, and so they read the Old Testament in Greek. It's called the LXX or the Septuagint because 70 men were involved in its translation. And the word uh, that is used here for fiery ordeal is used in the Old Testament of a smelting furnace. When you would take ore and you'd put it and heat it up in an oven in order to separate the slag from the pure metal. And so when one is tried, when a metal is tried, the slag is burned off. And so Job, in the midst of his great trials, can write in Job 23.10, but he knows the way I take. When he has tried me, I shall come forth as gold. So God uses fiery ordeals, persecutions, to persecute us to help us to grow further, and these things are inevitable. I also have underlined here in this verse the word happening. 
because it's a particular Greek word that is used elsewhere to describe God's sovereignty, God's overseeing the events in life. And again, Paul is going to, when we come to the eighth chapter, remind us that there's a certain synergism in all the events of life because God is working them together for our good. For what purpose? We often quote Romans 8.28, but not Romans 8.29, to make us like Jesus, to make us like the Lord Jesus. And so we sing in that great hymn of the faith, when through fiery trials thy pathway shall lie, my grace all-sufficient shall be thy supply. The flame shall not hurt thee, I only design the dross to consume and thy gold to, con- to refine. That's what Job is saying when he's tried me. I'll come forth as gold. If gold were not there, then God would not be refining. But God sees you more valuable than even gold. He sees you as one of his children. And so when there's hostility that comes from an unbelieving world, though they think they may be winning, Paul's going to help us to see that God is actually the one who is winning. Look at verse 13. Peter says, but to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing so that also at the revelation of his glory, that's when Jesus comes back, you may rejoice with exultation. Now the verb share here, most of us know the noun, right? Koinonia. There was a big koinonia movement in the 70s and 80s in the church where we spoke about fellowship and what it should look like and all the one another's. This is the verb form of the same word. It means a sharing together. And so when we are being persecuted, we are sharing a special, unique fellowship with the Lord. Paul wrote of that truth when he said in Philippians 3.10, that I might know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. Now, I've not suffered much for the cause of Christ in comparison to many people across the planet, even this morning at 6 a.m. as I was driving in and listening to Voice of the Martyrs and some of the heartache there in Eastern Asia and what God's people are going through. But sooner or later, you'll suffer. My words have been twisted. I've been slandered about. I've been gossiped about. My wife and I, when we were newly married, we were left out of a lot of family activity because our Christianity made people uncomfortable. And God says you're not to sulk. You're not to be discouraged. You're to keep on rejoicing, the verse says. Why? Because you're suffering with Christ. He is right there with you in the midst of it. Those three men in the fiery furnace, the king saw a fourth individual, whether it was the angel of the Lord, that is the pre-incarnate Christ, or if God just sent one of his messengers for comfort, we can't be dogmatic. I suspect the former, the angel of the Lord, but God was there with them, and that's the promise of the Lord Jesus as we go and we share the gospel. The promise of the Great Commission is, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So we can rejoice, one, because there's greater fellowship. When we go through suffering, it has a way of bringing us closer to the Lord. But there's also greater blessing. Again, in verse 14, if you are reviled, insulted, persecuted for the name of Christ, you're blessed. 
This is the word makarios, again, used in the Beatitudes in the Sermon on the Mount. You're prosperous, so to speak. You're happy. You're fulfilled on the inside. One, because of the intimate fellowship persecution brings, but also the great reward. Jesus will say in Matthew 5, blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. I hope you know that if you live for Christ, you're going to ultimately be reviled for the name of Christ. Unless, of course, you are carnal and out of fellowship with the Lord and not living a godly life. In fact, the world is glad to have you around. When you drink the drink that they drink, when you watch the compromised, dirty movies that they watch, when you share in the pornographic websites that they view, when you smoke what they smoke, when you listen to the same dirty jokes that they tell, they're glad to have you around. In fact, you're an excuse as a Christian for them living an unrighteous life. But if we are walking with the Lord, we will encounter difficulty, but it brings a closeness. We share in the Lord's presence. It brings blessing. But notice also in verse 14, it brings great power in your life. He says, if you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Why? Because the spirit of glory in God rests on you. Suffering has a way of drawing you to the Lord, making you more dependent in the midst of heartache. Paul will say to the Corinthians, it's in weakness that he found God's strength. He speaks here of the spirit of glory, that special ministry of the Holy Spirit of God. In fact, the latter part of verse 14, if you literally translate it, it reads, as you can see on the screen, for the presence of the glory, even the Spirit rests on you. The reference here is to the doxa. We get our word doxology, to the glory of God that would appear in the tabernacle and later in the temple. When the people stoned Stephen, He allowed Stephen to have a glimpse of that glory and that his face, the scripture said, shone like an angel as they rocked him into oblivion. This is the joy unspeakable that Peter spoke of already in the first chapter. And it's the reason why Paul and Silas, when beaten and bruised, could still be in prison singing praises to the Lord. And you are never more a recipient of God's strength than when you are in persecution. Look further into verse 16. He further develops our theology on suffering. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, he is not to be ashamed, but is to glorify God in his name. Instead of shame, we should feel honor. That's how the apostles would respond habitually. Luke, who pens the book of Acts, says this in Acts 5.41, after they had flogged the apostles and threw them in prison, so they went on their way from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. And so here he says, we're not to be ashamed, rather we are to glorify God. Not feeling ashamed is negative. Glorifying God is positive, and to live a balanced Christian life, we are to have both. If we seek to glorify God, then we will not be ashamed of the name 
of the Lord Jesus. We studied in Malachi recently what the name of God refers to, all that God stands for. So whoever believes in his name, John 1 will underscore, will have eternal life. And so if you suffer as a believer without complaining, that gives glory to the living God. Here's a slide. As you know, we have about 60 missionaries that this church that you support through your tithes and offering out of the hundreds that we support. India now, 60 missionaries in India. India now is the largest country in the world. They have passed China. If you reach India, China, and Pakistan for Christ, those three countries alone, you will reach nearly 4 billion people. And sadly, those three countries have the most severe persecution. And out of those three, India is leading. Some of our missionaries sent me this chart. It's a little hard to read, and there's a reason. The first line says church is burned, and the number there is 357. The second line there is houses burned, and it's uh, 4,550 plus. These are Christians in northern India. You're a Christian? Burn his house. What's the government that is currently being run by Hindus doing? Nothing. They'll say it's wrong, but they just turn the other way. In some places, because there's so many believers in a particular village, and God often does that. I learned this when I was in campus ministry. You go into one dorm and nothing seemingly was happening for Christ. We'd share with 50 people. No one came to fight. Come to another dorm. And there's people all over that dorm coming to Christ. God does that for a reason because there's a fellowship that's going to happen. I often would see this happen in neighborhoods. Well, in India, entire villages, not 100%, but a large percentage were being converted. So rather than to burn everything, just burn the whole village. 292 villages burned. Again, they were under lockdown when this was written, and they were constantly updating it, and they were running out of so-called ink on their magic board. Dead at the time, 153. Injured severely, 800 plus. This picture, I was just sent last week. It was breaking news. 13 killed in fresh violence in Manipur. Did you hear about it? Most of us have not. And if you intersect with some of the believers who are there, it's heartbreaking. Because the persecution is on the level of what Hamas did to the Jewish people. Cutting off hands and feet, plucking out eyes, beheading people. It's a brutality beyond belief. Polycarp, who is the bishop or the pastor in Smyrna, what we would call the senior pastor, who had been personally discipled by the apostle John. He lived in the latter half of the first century until the mid-second century, and he ended up being martyred for following Christ when they arrested him and threatened him with death if he did not recant his testimony. That great pastor replied with these words, 80 and six years I have served him, and he never did me any injury. How can I blaspheme my king and savior? The Roman officer who was charged with his execution said, I have respect for your age. Simply say, away with the atheists 
and be set free. And by the atheists, he meant the Christians who did not acknowledge Caesar as God. And once a year, by this time in the empire, there was emperor worship. And as they came to different communities, the Roman soldiers would place a statue of the Caesar if there was not one in the community. And you would come as a good Roman citizen and offer a pinch of incense and bow down and say, Caesar is Lord. When we will come, when you come to Romans chapter 10 in this most quoted verse, Paul will say that if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Now you will notice that the word as is in italics, meaning it's not a part of the original Greek, but it is added there by the translators to smooth out the English grammatically. But it literally reads, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus, Lord. And as Christianity spread through the empire, it became a potential threat to its unity. And so once a year, you had to confess, Caesar Kurios, Caesar is Lord. And the Christians were demanded to say that. And if someone were a true Christian, they refused to say that. They would either say, Hiesus Curios, Jesus is Lord, or Christos Curios, Christ is Lord. And emperor worship was not simply a spiritual issue, it was a political issue, because they had a multiplicity of gods. They didn't care what god you worshipped, as long as you worshipped Caesar as one of those gods, to keep the empire united, and not to would mean treason. So the officer who was charged with Polycarp's, Polycarp's execution said, I have respect for your age. Simply say, away with the atheists and be set free. But instead, he pointed to the crowds of Roman pagans around with them, and he said, away with the atheists. And he was executed that day, burned alive at the stake. You know... It was said that some of those Romans were converted by that man's testimony. Now, whether or not that is something that we can cement as a historical fact, because that writing comes much later, I don't know. But I do know what Peter says, that the impact of suffering for Christ rightly can influence lost people to meet the Lord. Look at verses 17 and 18. For it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it is with difficulty that the righteous is saved, what will become of the godless man and the sinner? Follow the argument of the verse. It's clear. If God's people are saved with great difficulty, then what will be the final outcome for those who are lost? He's quoting, as you can see in the marginal note, Proverbs 11. Some of you read that last week. And in Proverbs 11, he reminds us, Solomon, that it is with difficulty that we walk through this life. Please understand, he is not suggesting that our salvation is not secure. Peter has already affirmed the eternal security of the believer. What will we say, once saved, always saved? Nor does he doubt that God somehow has difficulty in keeping us saved. 
He is simply reminding us of the difficult road that we walk down if we truly follow Christ. Paul said this in Acts 14, 22. We read it already. Through many philipsis, plural though, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Again, verse 17, for it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. For if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome of those who do not obey or respond? The word obey means to listen under. It literally means to listen under the gospel. You hear the gospel and you listen under, you respond to the truth of the message. What will be their outcome? And so again, if it is with difficulty that the righteous is saved, what will become of the godless man and the sinner? As much as anything, I think this is a plea from Peter to have a compassionate witness because when we suffer, we are blessed. And these that persecute us are under the just wrath of God. Paul, by the way, will underscore this same truth in 2 Thessalonians. If you remember, one of the reasons he writes 2 Thessalonians on his first missionary journey is because there was a false letter that came after he had written 1 Thessalonians. And the persecution was intense and severe, so severe that in this false letter, some said, well, there is no rapture. You're in the day of the Lord. Well, number one, that would discredit Paul's first letter. But number two, it would also affirm that he taught a pre-tribulational rapture because there would be no need for distress if Paul in his first letter and in his first appearance to the church there at Thessalonica taught that you were going to go through the day of the Lord. They would have said, well, this is what Paul said we could expect. But they're deeply troubled because the persecution is so intense. And of course, when you're under intense persecution, listen, if you see your parents executed, if you see your five-year-old executed, you might say, well, Lord, where is justice? And Paul just reminds them, justice is coming. He says in the first chapter, for after all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to give relief to those who are afflicted and to us as well when the Lord Jesus will be revealed with uh, from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. When he comes to be glorified in his saints on that day and to be marveled at among all who have believed, for our testimony to you was believed. You see, the temptation might be, yeah, God, get those people. And Peter is reminding them, like Paul, if you read the entire two letters, God had compassion and mercy on you. You are to have compassion on them. And if they do not meet God in his forgiveness, then they will meet God in his wrath. Jesus said it this way in Matthew chapter 5 in the Sermon on the Mount. You have heard that it was said you shall love your neighbor, and they added, and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. What's your attitude? Is it God get them? 
or God be merciful to them. Yes, a day will come when God will make every wrong right. But God's heart, as Peter will underscore in his second letter, is for none to perish, but for all to come to repentance. And some of you were the mocking voices before you met the Lord. Times of persecution can be an opportunity for a loving witness. Look at verse 19. Therefore, those who suffer according to the will of God, Oh, I didn't know that's part of God's will. Tell that to Joel. That's not in his message. Those who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. Now back to Romans 5. The first truth I want to underscore is how maturity is displayed by us. Secondly, I want us to think about how maturity is developed in us how maturity is developed in us. Look again in verse 3. And not only this, but we also exult in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance. Circle that word knowing if you haven't done so already, because there's something he wants us to know, to understand for this to happen in our life. First, we need to know that tribulation brings about perseverance, or some of your Bibles say endurance, because apart from tribulation, you would have nothing to endure. And so, like James, we can rejoice in our trials. And Peter here, or Paul here is underscoring that, like Peter, suffering brings about proven character. Uh, Paul will uh, underscore this throughout his letters, and you read it even in kernel form in the book of Genesis. You remember Joseph, of course, who is harshly treated because he loved the Lord. And in the end, as he meets his brothers, he says, as for you, you, my brothers, meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about the present result to preserve many people alive. So perseverance, which by the way, is often translated the same Greek word in the New American Standard as stability, because that's really the byproduct, I suppose, of of perseverance. It makes someone stable. It makes them strong when difficulty comes in life. And it shows, among other things, that they know the Lord, and He's going to help us to see that in just a moment. And in some cases, it shows that people do not know the Lord. Listen to these words. Do you remember in the parable of the sower? A man goes out and sows seed. The first three soils, if you remember, represent unsaved people and their various responses. And the fourth soil alone represents the believer and some who bear differing amounts of fruit, but all who bear fruit. And when he describes the rocky soil, he describes some who just briefly believe and then turn away. Look at it. Those on the rocky soil are the ones who, when they hear, receive the word with joy. Some of you may bring someone to church, and they actually get excited. I I like that church. This is good news. And yet, these have no firm root. They believe for a while. That's their profession. It's here in the mind, but not yet with the heart. With the heart, man believes under righteousness. Like Simon the sorcerer, he believed. In fact, he was so convincing they baptized him. 
But when Peter comes down and does some assessment, he says he's still lost. He's in the bondage of iniquity. The demons believe intellectually only. What happens? Well, look at his argument. They believe for a while, and in time of temptation, they fall away. Why? Because they're not saved. They've never been truly converted. Mark puts it this way in Mark 4. And these are the ones sown on rocky ground, the one who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. And they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. Then when tribulation or persecution, he's using those two words interchangeably, tribulation or persecution, the same word we've seen, philipsis, that is the hatred of an unbelieving world. When it arises on account of the word, they immediately fall away. They come, they make a profession of faith, they go to work, they're starting to read the Bible, but they're not yet converted, and they begin to experience opposition. And what happens? They turn away because they've never truly been saved. Now, follow Peter's argument, or Paul's argument closely here in verse 5. Knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance, and perseverance proven character. So tribulation will make you stronger if you've met the Lord. And not only will it put steel in your spine against those who oppose you, it will make you more like Jesus Christ. Proven character. The word proven is a word that comes into English for silver, what we would call sterling silver. It speaks of character devoid of impurity. Proven character is a word that was used in New Testament times to describe that ore that was put in a smelting furnace, and all the impurities were removed, and you had pure silver or pure gold, dokimos. When you put the alpha prefix in front of it, adokimos, like in Romans 1.28, it's used to describe a reprobate or a depraved or in upside-down mind, depending on your English translation. It's the opposite of purity. And so it was clear to the first century reader that in many situations, the only way to separate the true believers from the false believers were through persecution. And so in the Ukraine, as I first went there in the early the late 90s, 1998, my first trip there, I've made nearly 40 trips in my lifetime. I asked, why do you wait so long to baptize some of these people? And they said, well, part of it just goes back to a tradition of how we dealt with the communists who would come into the church, who would make a fake profession of faith, and then try to get on the inside to rat out true believers so they could be sent to the gulag. Then we have those who will come, and they say they're saved. They have interest. They receive it with joy. They believe for a while, and they fall away. But you see, in that nation at that time, if you loved Christ, it's not a matter of if you were going to be persecuted by when. And it was oftentimes much more than verbal. It was physical. So they waited. So you couldn't get these phony baloney fakes to rat out on them. So perseverance is built through tribulation. That produces real character. And this proven character, notice, brings hope. 
Listen, when you go through tribulation in a God-honoring way, it shows that God is at work in your life. There's a closeness with the Lord, which he's going to underscore for us in just a moment. Again, this is similar to what James says. Consider it all joy, my brethren, not if, but when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, perseverance, proven character, and let endurance. We have to respond when the trials come. We can either bellyache and moan, or we can let the trial have its purpose, and then God typically doesn't have to take us through it immediately again. Let endurance have its perfect result, its maturing result, its teleos result, so that you can be mature and complete, lacking in nothing. Now, I hope you noticed it. I underscored it last time. This section starts with hope in verse 2. We exult in hope of the glory of God. That is, we rejoice in the promise that God will make us more like himself someday when we are glorified. And it ends with hope. And he is going to now underscore that truth in in the third point I want to make. I want us to think about how maturity is determined for us. How maturity is determined for us. The one who began this work shows that he's committed to completing this work, and that encourages us in our human spirit, which is in turn called hope and the glory of God. Verse 5, in hope does not disappoint. Now, he's obviously not talking about all kinds of hope because there are many kinds of hope in life that do disappoint. I had hoped, fill in the blank. A parent hoped that somehow their child that was severely sick would survive. I had hoped in that cure, but it didn't come. An employee with great aspirations for someone that they hired, I hoped that that person would have fleshed out, but they didn't. A person who watches his life savings dwindle to nothing said, I had hoped that that would be monies for my retirement. A mother standing over the casket of a prodigal son says, I had hoped better things for him. And on and on, I hoped for this, I hoped for that. And, of course, before we're done with the doctrinal section, he's going to discuss some of these disappointing kind of hopes and how we should respond. But he is referring here specifically to the hope. It's articular. In fact, in the Young's literal translation, it says, and the hope does not make ashamed. You say, who is Young? Robert Young wrote a concordance called the Young's Concordance. When I was a new Christian, every believer had one of two concordances. They were only available in the Old English, the Strong's Concordance or the Young's Concordance. And these were men who lived in the 19th century who would take, say, a word like world, and they would go through every place in the Bible where the word world appeared, a word like love, every time the word love appeared. And they cataloged the whole Bible without a computer. (laughs) What a job! Now, most people today don't even have paper concordances because it's all available through the computer. But he was a great scholar. And he underscores the literal translation, as you'd see in any interlinear. And the hope 
does not disappoint, or literally the hope does not make ashamed. Um, The King James uses the word ashamed. The English standard says, hope does not put us to shame. And again, it goes back to verse 2. There's a circle here. The hope of the glory of God. So someone might say, well, how do you know this is not just the power of positive thinking that Paul's trying to spread on us? How do we know that the hope doesn't really make us ashamed or disappoint? Well, read further into verse 5. And hope does not disappoint. And why not? Because, here's the reason. The love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who is given to us. Verse 5, of course, will only make sense to you if you've been born again. Because only born again people have received the Holy Spirit. Now, sadly, there are denominations, not everyone in the denomination, but denominations today like Lutherans and Anglicans and Episcopalians and Methodists who say that you receive the Holy Spirit at infant baptism. Nothing could be further from the truth. You're not born again in the waters of baptism. In Christ, in Him, you also have to, listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having believed, you listen to the gospel, you believe the gospel, and then you're sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. So you're not given the Holy Spirit until you believe, and He's called our helper, He's called our comforter, and there are many ministries that He has. And so what you discover as you walk through trials and God is building you and you're getting closer to the Lord because it's in weakness we find his grace to be sufficient, you experience the love of the Spirit poured out in your heart. There's an experiential dimension to the Holy Spirit in the life. Now, he's not going to stop here because he's going to underscore the objective dimension in verses 6 through 11. But here he's underscoring how the love of the Holy Spirit has been poured out in our hearts. And that hope, the hope, does not disappoint. Now, there's much more we need to say, but let me apply this. Let me underscore three truths that we can take home today. Number one, if you live for Christ, know that you will be persecuted. If you live for Christ, just know you will be persecuted. Now, you can turn to Revelation 2 and 3 if you wish, or you can just listen carefully. If you remember, there are seven epistles, seven letters that Jesus wrote to seven churches that existed in the first century. Why these seven? Well, I think the same reason we have other letters written to particular churches, because they represent the issues and problems and blessings that churches will experience throughout the church age. And he writes to the church of Smyrna. Smyrna is only one of the two, one of two churches when he speaks to seven churches that were healthy. There's no rebuke. In Revelation 2 and in verse 9, I know your tribulation. There it is, the ellipsis, your persecution and your poverty, but you are rich. This was a healthy church. These were godly people. And they had experienced a lot of persecution, a lot of tribulation that led to financial poverty, just like the Hebrews, the letter to the Hebrews. Their persecution was so intense, many of them were basically bankrupt. And so he speaks and warns against the love of money. They didn't have much of this world's goods. And in that sense, they were poor. 
But when the king and the Lord of the church assesses them, he says they were rich. By contrast, in 315 of the Revelation, he addresses the church at Laodicea. I know your deeds, that you're neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. God would rather have you hot and headed for heaven or outright cold and headed for hell than to be lukewarm. Because you say, I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing, and you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked, I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire, that you may become rich in white garments, that you may clothe yourself. Garments are used either positionally or practically here in the Revelation, here practically of their works. In white garments that you may clothe yourself and that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed. And I salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I repuve and discipline. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. Now, if you went to this church and if they existed in the 21st century, the parking lot would be filled with Mercedes and BMWs and Cadillacs or whatever you think is an expensive vehicle. And the women would be covered in furs and diamonds, I suppose. You'd say, they're a rich group. And Jesus said, they're poor. Spiritually speaking, they are poor. And so they have a need of white garments, not here for justification, but for sanctification. Listen, why were they poor? Because of comp- there was nothing wrong with the blessings they had received. But when you become consumed with the blessing and you miss the Lord, you're in a terrible state. And so they were not living passionately for Jesus Christ like they needed to be. Listen, you live for Christ, you're going to experience persecution. Here's a promise you can stand on. Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And if you've never been persecuted in your life, let me tell you why either. Number one, you've never been saved. And so you fit the metaphor that Jesus uses. You're out and out cold. You may be Christianized, but not born again. And so you're in such harmony with the average pagan in the United States, they don't really bother you. Or number two, you're not persecuted because in Jesus' words, you are lukewarm. You are like those in Laodicea who have compromised the standard of righteousness. Or number three, you are such a new Christian, you haven't had enough time to grow where your lifestyle begins to become offensive to a lost world. But sooner or later, if you live godly for Christ Jesus, you will be persecuted. And I suppose a fourth reason that some and many in the American church have not faced opposition is because their faith is not very public. I was on a radio broadcast this week 
They go out to hundreds and hundreds of stations. And I said, one of the major problems in the world today in Christianity is the average Christian, especially in America, has stopped reaching out and sharing their faith. When I say public, I'm not saying walking this island, saying that I've become a Christian. That's a given. That's the first step if you know Jesus. I'm talking about being verbal for the Lord Jesus. But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses. You see that word witness? It's the word martores. And through time, that word came to mean martyr. Because so many people were witnesses for Jesus, they were martyred. And so Tertullian will write, the blood of the saints becomes the seed of the church. The more they were persecuted, the more the gospel spread. Do you remember what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 14? But thanks be to God who always leads us in his triumph in Christ and manifests through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of him in every place. For we are a fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one an aroma from death to death, to the other an aroma from life to life. Now, you and I may not realize the presence of our fragrance because that's just the way we are. But when we step into a lost world, the smell is responded to, our life is responded to in one of two ways. They either smell that life and say, I want it. What do you got? It's a sweet aroma. Or they say, yuck, get out of my presence. To some, we are a fragrance because we are verbalizing our faith. No secret service Christians. The others, opposition. Secondly, if you live for Christ, know that persecution may take many forms. If you live for Christ, know that persecution may take many forms. Listen, you may never be burned at the stake. But understand, it can take many forms. Talk about persecution. What's happening in Indonesia? You got high school students, high school students who've been beheaded, born-again high school students because they're living for Jesus. Homes burn there because they're living for Jesus. Sometimes it is physical. More often than not, persecution is verbal. And I think it's interesting that that's what Jesus emphasizes in the Sermon on the Mount. And I think Satan is wise. Sometimes, again, you persecute someone physically, and the gospel only spreads. You persecute them verbally, and if they don't respond properly, it's like a barb in their soul, and they become so discouraged and so despondent, they just stop speaking up for Jesus. So what are you going to do if people start talking about you? What are some of you middle and high school students going to do if you don't watch porn on your phones with your friends? They're going to mock you. What are some of you college students going to do if you choose not to use someone's preferred pronouns? Like one of our members who was fired from a job at Clemson. By God's grace, a Christian attorney intervened. I know what Clemson's going to do now. They're just not going to hire these born-agains. 
But what are you going to do if you don't use preferred pronouns? What are some of you Navy and Marines going to do when on these deployments people go out and get wasted and they shack up with women? And on one occasion, I counsel, they switch wives. What are you going to do? Listen, you start living a kingdom lifestyle in some social gatherings you'll be left out of. Some of your golf buddies won't call you anymore. But Jesus said, be glad when you're persecuted in that day and leap for joy. For behold, your reward in heaven is great. I'm just trying to prepare you and I want you to prepare your children because things aren't getting better in America. We are in a downward spiral. And they're going to come after Jews, and they're going to come after the born-agains. Third, if you do not live for Christ, know that it will cost you more. Not following the Lord Jesus means you're siding with the world. You say, I'm not siding with the world. I just haven't made a decision. There's no such thing as neutrality in the words of Jesus. You're either for him or you're against him. And so throughout the Gospels, Jesus warns prospective disciples that they need to decide, because not to decide is to make a decision. But I want to tell you, you follow Christ, you may encounter persecution. You will. You don't follow Christ. What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world And in the end, he forfeits his soul. You have to choose sides. You can't be neutral. Our Father, we thank you for this portion of Scripture to allow us to get our minds recalibrated to what your word says. I pray for someone here today, maybe someone who has been known as mocking believers, And yet you brought them here within the sound of my voice through the internet, through a radio broadcast, or maybe even present in one of these three sanctuaries. Help them today to call on Jesus. You said today is the day of salvation. When you hear the message, don't harden your heart. Help them in simple childlike faith, knowing that Jesus paid for all of our sin by his death and resurrection to say, Lord Jesus, save me. For those of us that have children and grandchildren, help us to prepare them for the opposition that is growing and multiplying and deepening. May we have the perspective that we are blessed when men say all sorts of evil against us falsely on account of you, for you promise great is our reward in heaven. And we ask it, Lord Jesus, for your honor and for your glory. Amen. Would you stand? We'll sing a hymn of invitation. You're here and you've received Christ. Maybe this morning you called out in faith, Jesus, save me. Make it public. That's a first step. You'll have an opportunity in just a minute to leave your seat and to come to this front row. And your coming will be saying, I'm not ashamed of Jesus. If you have not had biblical baptism, you may be in Graves, you may be in Graniteville, and you've not been baptized since you've been saved. That's an act of obedience you do after salvation. You say, preacher, I'm saved, I'm baptized, but I need a church. We need you. 
If you want to come, I invite you to meet me here in the front. Matt, come and lead us. If you have a decision, come now.